1: Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. This is Mike Stax. My producer, James Archer, and I hope you've been enjoying the first season. We've put in countless hours of work to make each episode special, entertaining, and informative. Before we begin this episode, I hope you'll take a few minutes to consider becoming one of our Patreon supporters. For a small monthly donation, you'll get access to ad-free episodes and special bonus content, including outtakes, audio of rare interviews, photos, and other ephemera. Your contribution will also help us to keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, and psychedelic music. Just search Ugly Things Podcast Patreon. Sign up today. Now let's get to it. Hello. Hi Andy, it's Mike Stacks. Hi there. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Andy Allison. Andy was the lead singer for not one, but three great bands in the 60s and 70s. John's Children, Jet, and Radio Stars. He's written about his many escapades with each of these groups, and much more, in an immensely enjoyable new memoir called Stunt Rocker. The title refers to Ellison's legendarily wild, athletic and sometimes death-defying feats on stage starting with onstage fights and leaps into the audience with John's children and escalating to his trampoline assisted somersaults and light rib climbing days with radio stars. His stunts became so notorious that in 1978 the new musical express published a diagram of a human skeleton illustrating the multitude of injuries Ellison had sustained during just one tour. These included a dislocated jaw, three broken ribs, a stab wound to the arm from an audience member armed with a hypodermic needle and 15 stitches to his right hand caused by an exploding beer glass. Andy and I discussed all of these misadventures, taking the story right back to his school days. Hope you enjoy our conversation.
0: I was just to say, you know, why did you decide it was time for you to write an autobiography?
2: Um... I don't know. Just over a period of time, I gradually started writing notes, and in in the end, I got like about I think about ten different exercise books filled with uh, pencil ideas of well, what I was doing over a period of time. Sometimes going back to what I can remember, and a lot of it maybe now and again some diaries that I kept. But basically, yeah, just uh, I mean, put the whole thing down. It maybe took about. Uh, obviously, this would be in. Uh, bits and starts so wouldn't always you know uh, I've had months off and not do anything and then eventually having to type the whole thing out with two fingers <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean so it's all done by me which is a bit strange because uh, I think there's quite a few other people who've done books but they're usually speaking or to somebody else or anyway it's all mine
0: yeah and I, and I love that it's all in your voice it, it's uh it just keeps that, that line all the way through it. That's you. Um, so, you know, let's go back to the beginning of the story. You grew up in uh, North Finchley. and um, Yes. Yeah, the first, thing, it, the first thing that made me laugh in the book was when you were talking about your imaginary friend, Charlie Chipper Chopper. That, that, <laughs> that, that made me laugh out loud for some reason. I don't know if it's something great yeah, about that name.
2: That is, actually. It's, it's quite bizarre. I don't know how I came up with it, but anyway, yeah, Charlie Chipper Chopper, as I said in the book, eventually, and when my brother was born, I, I had to get rid of Charlie Chipperchopper.
0: Chopper. You didn't need him anymore, I suppose.
2: I'm, no, he was um, useless, and uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I got rid of him.
0: Okay. Uh, let's talk about, you were sent off to boarding school in Devon called Odom Hill School, and there you instigated yeah. the mass Escape of the (laughs) students and you went to go live, went to go live wild on on Exmoor. So can you tell, can you tell that story about how all that happened? That was pretty amazing.
2: Well, my parents had obviously sort of got a bit worried about me going off the tracks and thought maybe I should be, I mean, I'd never been to boarding school before and never that far away because it's a long way from London. It was right down in, in Exmoor, which is like a more, you know, Sort of in the West Country, miles away, about you know about six or seven hours from London. Anyway, so I end up there for two years of my life, and you know I'm sort of uh, towards the end of it. I'm actually enjoying it towards the end. I wasn't in the beginning, but and then I I'm always having to some kind of adventure that I thought of, and I thought, well, how about if we all just ran away and lived on Exmoor, the whole school? So I actually sort of got. I was only about sort of like. 20 or so pupils there, I'm can't exactly, and they're all boys uh, two of them were in the sick bay so they left out, we left them there and um, during a break time, which we went out onto a field on the top of this hill, round the back and uh, earlier in the morning we'd all, I'd filled some sacks with chickens, live chickens and, we, and held them over the back of our head and then, then during this break in the morning, we just disappeared over down the hill, down into a stream, and went off. And so um, no idea what happened when one of the masters came out to the end of break time to blow the whistle for us to come come back in. And there's, there's no sign of anybody. <laughs> that would have been, I'd love to have seen that. Anyway, um, so we just went off into, uh, we went along a river, which I know, I'd seen a cowboy film where I thought, you know, if you go along a river they can't have any trace of you <laughs> right. and just went on and on and on and on out into Exmoor where we eventually set up camp um, you know, and sort of uh, we built this these sort of makeshift tents which weren't really tents with ferns and sticks and everything so we could sleep there and, uh, you know, cut the chickens down uh, whereas some of them we tied on ropes and with the tied them into the tree so they were sort of sitting up there. <laughs> and uh, uh, later that night, um, which is quite, uh, you know, <laughs> this is a bad thing, because I had to you know, chop the chicken's head off in front of some of the boys who were really a bit worried at that, and it just, the chicken just ran around like a, you know. Wow. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I would, we all knew how to pluck chickens and everything, so we'd been learnt all this sort of stuff, and um, put it on a makeshift, curling wheel on a spit over the fire and it was the most amazing chicken i've ever tasted I to bet. this day i still can't <laughs> i don't know why it just tasted so amazing and we would like of ravenous urchins you know something <laughs> i don't know out of um out of the book of, i've forgotten what
0: the name of the book. like like lord of the oh. flies
2: that that's the book that's it <laughs> yeah, I mean, we really looked like it was uh, unbelievable, but there we were, and somehow we managed to stay there, and you know, eventually getting caught by the police. Well, actually, um, you've probably read in the book that um, I went back to the school to try and get some more food in in the out uh, outbuildings where I knew there was loads of big tins of food. Uh, that's when I got caught. Yeah, but I managed to get away again from one of the masters who, you know, sort of uh, caught me. Um, when, when I eventually went all the way back over the hills and, and, you know, through these streams and stuff and back, when I got back to the camp, there was nobody there anymore. I didn't realize that the police had come and somehow, I don't know what, well, sure, I think there was helicopters and things that had spotted some of the, some of the, <laughs> um, anyway, they were, so a lot of them had been taken back to the school. Uh, so, wh- I mean, when I got back to the camp, it was dark by then and i could just see the embers of the fire and it was really scary. And um, I was shouting for everybody. And there was nobody there. And then um, suddenly there's, there's this huge noise above me and one of the chickens fell out of the tree. So and I thought, oh, my God. So I, I just cut him loose and set him off, you know, and said, you know, go live your life, which is something from Borat, I think. But anyway, so um, and then I had to find my way all the way back to the school in the dark, which was another experience. And when I, eventually when I did get back, Uh, There were the police there, and, you know, I was, um, I mean, I don't know how far you want me to go with this, but uh, (laughs) uh, I was, uh, uh, the next couple of days I was, you know, sent back home. Actually, the school got closed down.
0: That Uh, was as a result of what happened, because, why, because the parents were just so upset that their kids were allowed to escape?
2: Uh, I mean, to tell you the truth, there were a couple of masters at the school that were a bit dodgy, and so, uh, you know, uh, anyway. For that reason, I'm not sure why, but I was, you know, sent back home. And my parents were really, you know, really worried, you know, of what actually happened. They were actually really sort of <laughs> angry. But then a couple of masters turned up a few days later from the school to, you know, tell them exactly what happened. There. Uh, so eventually I'm sent off to another school.
0: Right. And, and how, how old were you at this point?
2: Uh, that was, I was there when I was 14 to 16. So this is sixteen. Okay. Still quite a naughty boy at 16, so I'm off to the next school. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. and, at,
0: and at the next boarding school, that's where you met Chris Townsend, with whom you go on to have numerous musical adventures and other adventures. So tell me about first meeting Chris and what it was that, that you know, made you two bonders, friends.
2: Well, t- I mean, to tell you the truth, um, I've been at the school for probably about six or seven months before I really sort of bothered to meet this guy. because There's a lot of, pupils at the school but i hung out with some other boys but one day um i'd had a, a rugby ball smashing to my eye and i had to go to epsom hospital but after that i was knocked off lessons and i could go and, and my the headmaster there said andy you you're pretty good at art you can do help this other guy do the backdrop for the coming up play end of term play and that's when i met up with chris townsend for the first time and he said um yeah the only reason i'm Doing this backdrop with you is because i've smashed up my glasses so i don't have to do lessons <laughs> uh and the, uh, so so we're both doing this massive backdrop which is laid out on the floor with pots of paint and everything and I, it wasn't too long before i thought my god this guy is really funny and he's also a bit like me um almost as naughty as me and we really started to share everything so i mean this went on obviously into the future when we became in, uh, you know, John's children, what well, the silence to begin with, and then on and on through, you know, bands. Right. Who'd have known? I mean, yeah. Um, but anyway, we ended up making such a mess on this. Uh, you know, <laughs> in the end, we started rolling around with paint all over the floor on this thing. And we thought, oh, my God, we what a, this is, you know, what's the headmaster going to say? Yeah. I suddenly stopped and thought, oh, oh my God. Stopped and the headmaster came in, and took us both by the uh, round shoulders, round well, his you know hands around our shoulders, and he said, "That's really good, guys. I think it's going to work." And, and that was our uh, headmaster. He was <laughs> sometimes he could be you know really strong, and then other times he'd just be the most amazing guy you, you know could ever meet. Right, right. That he- was Uncle Mac, <laughs> Mister Macomish.
0: Okay. So then we jumped forward a couple of years, like you know, to like I guess sixty four or sixty five. You're working as a photographer's yeah. assistant in the city of London. And you and Chris meet up again and you join the first band. So, you know, which was, I, I guess, originally the Clockwork Onions. But yeah, t- t- tell me about that, you know, how you suddenly were a band member, you know, that hadn't been on, the, on your radar before.
2: Well, I mean, I'd, I'd got a job as a photographic assistant in London and Chris had been at an art school somewhere else. We sort of occasionally met up. Uh, he kept coming up to my place in Soho, and asking me to come out, you know, let's go and smoke some cigarettes in—in in, um, he called it the square, which was uh, Trafalgar Square. Um, which was wasn't a good thing because uh, I didn't know what he was smoking these in those times. And I, you know, he had this new language. Like, "Hey man, let's go, let's go and smoke some of this stuff down the square." And I thought, finally <laughs> Chris, what's happened to you? You, you were, didn't sound like that before." But anyway, so. <laughs> he kept coming up to my place at Rome studios. And then one time he said, um, Hey, you've got to come down to leatherhead back to leatherhead where, you know, I'm in a group now and I'm playing drums. Uh, you've got to come down this Saturday. And I went, really? So it, I said, I didn't know you could play any drums or anything. He said, well, I'll come over to the, the coffee bar, uh, which was nearby, which is the two eyes coffee bar. And, uh, we sat there for a a couple of hours and when he told me all these stories about how he suddenly got into this group, Um, well, for for a start, he was actually coming there to, uh, um, the house that he went to, for instance, was uh, a guy that was meant to be helping him with his art. Uh, But when he got there, he could hear all this music going on in another room and thought, you know, uh, he got bored with the idea that this guy was going to help him out with his uh, artwork and said, oh, what's going on in there? And eventually went into the room next door where this band were rehearsing, and um, it just all went on from there. But I mean, I'm telling you about Chris's side of it, which you might want to drop out, because the best thing is when I came down that Saturday night to the Fetchham Village Hall where they were playing, I sort of came in, and the place was packed, and there was Chris sitting behind the drums, banging away like I'd never seen anything like it. He was almost like the the mini Keith Moon of the future. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, but halfway through the act there, I was watching this, um, suddenly the, the singer started shouting at a guy at the back of the club and leapt off stage and went, Oi, what are you doing with my girl or something? And, and they ran out of the hall <laughs> and disappeared. <laughs> well, the band just kept on playing. These are the Clockwork Onions, by the way, at this time, yeah, uh, with Chris Townsend on drums. And, um, the poor band are then sort of continuing to try and keep going without the singer. And I thought, oh, I know what I'll do, because I've got a load of these harmonicas that I used to play um, and strapped across my chest. So I left up on stage and started wailing away on the harmonicas for a bit. And then still he, the singer never came back. <laughs> and then, uh, for some reason or other, I just started making up words to these 12-bar tunes. And uh, I remember looking around and Chris putting a thumbs up, you know, and saying, um, and we just carried on the gig like that. God knows how we managed to get away with it. And next thing, I'd been asked to come and rehearse with the Cropper Gunnins the following week. And so, you know, things went, um, you know, went on from there.
0: Well, right. So it's so almost like an accident that you, came, you just stepped in and, and now you're yeah, a acc- singer forever.
2: Yeah. yeah, the accidental pop star, <laughs> accidental rock star, who knows what. I mean, that was it. <laughs> no idea. But it was good. I'm here with Chris now, my, my best mate. In this band, which uh, eventually I changed the name to The Silence, only because we were extremely loud and because we were like following The Who and The Small Faces. We just loved those two bands and also The Kinks as well at that time. And uh, things went on from there until, you know.
0: So let's talk about The Silence a little bit. You know, tell me about your repertoire. I mean, I guess you were sort of a mod band, you know, playing. R&B stuff right so you know what kind of numbers would you have in your set
2: oh it, yeah it was, Oh, it's, there was a few King's numbers a few uh, definitely Rolling Stones early you know sort of things um, I think there's a, there's a list in my book at some point yeah, I know you mentioned you did uh, Rosalind by The Pretty Things I definitely did Rosalind you know who their number, especially Gloria, which we used to do for about 20 minutes, because we didn't know how to end it. it? <laughs> uh, and I'd added about 17 more verses. Um, yeah, those sort of things. Um, Smokestack, Lightning, loads of blues numbers that everybody, those bands at that time were doing. Right. We were just copying the American way of uh, bringing the sort of english to their bluesy numbers the Stones were doing right
0: let's talk about the other guys in the band at that point aside from you on vocals obviously Chris on drums there was uh, Jeff McClelland on guitar John Hewlett on bass so tell me a little bit about each of them their personalities
2: okay well at this point in time Jeff McClelland was our, our guitarist in fact he was the one that actually started the, the Clockwork onions which went on to be the Few then the Silence um He's uh, an interesting guy. He's, I think he's about nine foot tall. So, you know, that was the main thing about him. And the other thing was um, John Hewlett only came in by mistake. We were rehearsing up at Jeff McLennan's house once a week. We used to do it. Um, the, the bass player at that point had just dropped out. I can't even remember his name. But um, out of the blue, John suddenly turned up at one of our rehearsals and said he could play bass. Uh, and we thought, oh. Wow, well, he looks really good. And he said, I've got lots of contacts, so you don't worry, we're going to get some loads of gigs. So we handed him a bass guitar, and because we played so loud, we didn't really hear what he was doing. But, <laughs> but he looked but he looked really good. So we've got now Jeff McClellan, John Hewlett on bass, Chris on drums, and myself, um, warbling away. <laughs> right. And
0: I guess the next thing that happens that kind of, you know, where the band really started taking off is that John and Chris connected with Simon Napier-Bell, who was managing the Yardbirds, and they ran across him somehow in in Saint-Tropez, as you relay in your book. And he ends up becoming your manager. So, you know, how did things change after Simon started managing you?
2: Right. Uh, Well, no sooner after this strange thing in the book that you might have to... Worth reading about where the two of them went off to saint um and got arrested and etc. and you can see one of the, John manages to get out of jail and gets to Saint-Chapelle and meets up with Simon Azebel and Bell and asks him, "You've got to come back to London and see this amazing band called The Silence." And of course, John's very good at um, you know talking to people, um, <laughs> charming <laughs> them. He was such a charmer. Um, I'll leave out all the long story which happened there. But then we're meant to be playing at this Burford Bridge summertime um, swimming pool party every year. We used to do it. And this year we, uh, well, I I thought it wasn't going to happen because myself and Jeff couldn't find out where John and Chris were. But on the morning of this gig, both of them somehow arrived back. Uh, Chris arrives, you know, from out of a, from a bus with his all his torn clothes and everything, at the same time, John Hewlett, who has now been come back with Simon and been living in his um, penthouse in London and dressed in all white, he arrives at the same time, and uh, so we're actually going to do this gig. And uh, John saying, "No, no, honestly, we've got this guy, uh, the manager of the Yardbirds. He's going to come down and see us tonight." And um, we're all going, yeah, well, that's not going to happen. But uh, anyway, we're going to go and do this gig. Of course, Chris doesn't really want to do the gig at all. He starts kicking the van and, you know, he, anyway, he managed to get him some clothes and you know, to <laughs> sort him out. And we go and do this gig at the Burford Bridge swimming pool, which is quite fun, really, because uh, it's at the back of the swimming pool and we're set up there and we do one set and still nobody, nobody's come down to see us. But anyway, um, then at one point... Chris started getting really angry about the whole thing and just, you know, like gets into the swimming pool. <laughs> at that moment, uh, uh, apparently uh, Simon had come in at the back at that point and I'd got up on the diving board and, you know, oh, well, if Chris is going to throw his drums in, uh, into the swimming pool, I'm going to go off the top board. So I'd, I'm singing <laughs> from the top board and then dive into the pool and fuse everything. And uh, so that's uh, when the... <laughs> Well, that's when Simon decided to sign us. that <laughs> night. I don't think he's would ever seen anything quite like it. Um, he, he did say in the books at the time that that was the worst band he'd ever seen, but to tell you the truth, we were actually quite tight at that point in time. Well, apart from his drum, drums going in swimming pools and uh, me diving off the top board. But um, uh, we went to a pub uh, down the road from there that evening, and, and loads of brandies were had, and... He, I think he was quite taken with us. Maybe uh, I don't know. We just looned. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, quite we could be quite funny. So I don't know. Anyway, he said, "I'll sign you."
0: the first thing he, he did for you? I mean, he helped you with uh,
2: with money, obviously, well, and equipment. The first, well, the first thing he did, because the Yardbirds had gone to America, he secretly said you can use all their equipment in this country So, without the Yardbirds' name. So he we went to this place in Hampton, Cork, with all this amazing equipment, and rehearsed there for about a week or two, and then he got us to country. So unfortunately, at the same time, we'd also already got a load of gigs lined up. So we were doing two gigs a night which was uh uh well the only way we could do it was we said to jeff look i'll tell you what we'll do one early gig and then go to the next one but what you've got to do is when we get to the first gig and we've only been playing for about a couple of numbers you just fall off the stage and faint right and uh then we'll you know the manager will say you know oh, well, give us some money and we'll go off to the next gig so yeah and it <laughs> well, the only couple of nights we were... Uh, oh, the first one was the ricky-tick in Guildford, and uh, Jeff, uh, after about two numbers, just um, went straight forward off the stage, smashed onto the ground. i never seen anything like it. I thought <laughs> I thought he was just going to pretend he was fainting, but he really did the whole thing. His nose was bleeding. Or, anyway, <laughs> so um, John went off and got all the money from the, the manager, and the manager was really scared. He said, oh, I'm so sorry about this. Don't worry. Off he goes. Uh, the next minute, we're playing at another gig in Epson that Simon <laughs> Napier-Bell has um, organized. Uh, anyway, um, and not long after, Ricky got this idea that he wanted to change the name. So he took um, myself... Well, we, we used to go to a, a place uh, on the Edgware Road, which was the Lotus House, a notorious, um, wonderful Chinese restaurant. We'd often go there with fights with rice and everything. Anyway, one night there, he said, I've decided I want to change your name to John's Children. We love the name Silence, but he, he said, no, I'm adamant that I, because John is the least um, musically minded person in the band, I really want to give him some kind of you know, acumen. So I want you to be called John's Children. And from tomorrow onwards, I want you to all wear white. When I say that, I bought all these white clothes. We're going to go out and get them all. I want you to have about five or six different changes because I want you to wear them the moment you get up in the morning, and that's it. So we were now John's children, and we all were all were wearing white. And then he then he imported a car from the states, which was Al Capone's uh, car that he used to drive around with. Um, and brought that to London where he got it. Uh, we took it to a place in Notting Hill where we got it sprayed totally white. And then we would have a chauffeur who was actually. Oh, by then we'd also bought the club in Leatherhead where we used to play, the Bluesette Club. But now this was John's Children's Club, owned by um, Simon Abel. He's a band actually. But the manager at the club was a guy called Chris Coville, who was now, uh, you know, helped us manage the club. He was the guy that Pete see, but about the quadrophenia.
0: The main uh, character, Jimmy.
2: Yeah, Jimmy, which was eventually played by Phil Daniels.
0: So Pete based Jimmy on the guy that, that ran uh, the John Children
2: Club. Yeah. Wow. So that's Chris Coville, which is the manager of our club. Right. He's then given a white uniform, and he then drives us around in this <laughs> white Oldsmobile. And Simon napier Bell. How he did it, I have no idea, hires a massive Hells Angel entourage, uh, the local sort of, I don't know, Surrey Hells Angels. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the chapter of Hells Angels. So they're, they're in the front us, driving in the front of us as we go to gigs, and another load behind the car as well. And <laughs> God knows what this must have thought of, looked like as we drove through the parts of England. I have no idea. It was, people would just look, you know, aghast as we drove by <laughs> so they'd come to the gigs and they'd be you know security at the front of the stage and uh, so that was it you know crazy uh, the funny part of that point in time in England the well the the greasers as they were called or the hell's angels were hated mods and yet we were a mod band yeah so there was a, a real thing about the whole thing dichotomy there right uh, we did that so, uh, <laughs>
0: You had the rocker, you know, security entourage. That's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. We'll be right back.
0: So at what point, you know, did you start actually making records and writing your own material?
2: Uh, Well, we started doing that in the silence. In fact, um, a lot of... um, gigs that I used, we used to do in the silence, people were saying, why are you playing this stuff? We, we want, you know, the originals that the other bands are doing. And they thought, this is weird. we're doing some numbers that we've never heard of. So that's where we started, writing. Right. And so by the time Simon came in, and we were now John's children, we were just writing stuff that really may be quite bizarre, because we had no idea what we were doing. We were coming from totally, I'm coming from nowhere in particular, um, none of us really knew what we were doing. Yeah. So you know, that's why I think John's Children's Music is quite weird, actually. A lot of people <laughs> said, My God, where, where, where do you get all this stuff from?
0: <laughs> so a lot of that material was what ended up on the Orgasm album, right? Yeah. Like the first things you wrote. Uh, things like Jagged Time Lapse.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Jagged Time Lapse. Now, that actually is written by Jeff McClelland. Uh, that is like the most psychedelic record before it even became psychedelic. I thought, wow, he was ahead of his time. Mind you, the name Clockwork Onions was pretty good as well. That was before <laughs> yeah. Clockwork Orange. So I don't know. Um, we were coming out with some strange stuff. And the whole of that Orgasm album, which was a great name for a record, <laughs> didn't really help as much in the future. But um, we played our whole set live in the studio, at AdVision Studios in Bond Street, I think it was. Did the whole thing live stopped it. The following day, Simon went out and bought Screaming the, from the, I think it was from Shea Stadium, the Beatles screaming. Uh, all the, uh, sorry, not the Beatles screaming. That would have been a bit silly. It was the audience <laughs> screaming which he, um, you know, spliced over the top of our things. Which which sounded amazing, but at the same time, I wish we'd just had the original because I think we did pretty well just with live thing on its own.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he was obviously trying to build up this image of you that you were already bigger than you were, you know, yeah, you, you know, so you've got a live album with yeah. you know hysterical audience and, uh, you know, the Hells Angels entourage and Al Capone's car and everything.
2: Yeah. I mean, really, he was going to town on everything he could to push us in the strangest ways possible. And of course, um, we would go along with that because we were already uh, quite crazy on stage before Simon had even come round to see us so I think he wanted to then push how crazy we could be on stage well obviously you know by the time he got onto the tour with The Who throughout Germany that's when you know it all came to the surface.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that one <laughs> before that though let's talk okay. about you know, so really the Orgasm album was the first thing you did and then the Smash Block single, which was uh, quite successful in in the States. Um, you know, tell me about the Smash Block single. You're actually the only member of the band on it, right?
2: Yeah. Um, so we... Well, the next thing, that uh, Simon, obviously, I, he went off to America and he uh, got some session musicians to record the backing track to it. But We'd actually started doing it in England. Well, uh, we'd actually listened to a Joe Tex single, and I can't remember the name of it at the moment, but we loved the the feeling of that and the way it was written and based the track Smash Blocked on that. And so when Simon came back with this backing track, he came up you know, and said, Andy, I want you to come into the studios by yourself. And so I did the vocals to it. Of course, this didn't really go down too well with especially Jeff and Chris, who thought, you know, well, Chris wasn't too worried about the whole thing. So we're now got a backing track and me singing and uh, it's quite a psychedelic sort of sound i mean it's really spiraling beginning with me talking over it we had to change the name in england because they wouldn't go with smash blocked um because of the the idea that smash was getting you know drunk and and blocked was taking pills there. So we had to change it to the love I thought I'd found, right. um, and I uh, think it, I think it went down quite well over in California. It sold so much money to buy our club, the John's Children's Club. Oh, that's how you made it. Was out on White Whale Records? Right. Where the turtles were on, which you then became Oh and Eddie behind Mark Boland sometime later.
0: Yeah, anyway, it I'm all right. connects. <laughs> So talking of Mark Boland, I mean, that's really the next thing that happens is Mark replaces Jeff on guitar. So um, I know you've told that story many times before, but, you know, tell me how you were introduced to Mark and, uh, you know, how you introduced him to sort of electric amplified music, really, because he was kind of a still kind of a folky at that point.
2: Yeah, uh, well, the only reason we were trying out Mark was because Kit Lambert had seen us play at a club in London called The Tiles and said, uh, if, if you can get rid of that tall, lanky guitarist, who's not really nine feet tall, by the way, um, get somebody a similar size, I'll sign you to track records. So, you know, one night I'm taken off by Simon and said, you know, I, I want you to try a new guitarist in the band, you know, and I thought, oh my God, I can't, I can't ask Jeff to leave, this is terrible. But he said, no, I really need you to come and see this guy. He's a folk artist who I'm managing at the moment. So... One afternoon so the beginning of the week, I'm taken off with Simon in his Bentley. We drive down to Wimbledon and he's living in a, one of these prefab houses, which is sort of things that um, were built after the war. It's the house people. It's outside Wimbledon Dog Stadium. He drops me off there for the afternoon and says, go down, you know, so I just go down the path, knock on the door and there's Mark who opens the door, and I see this funny, sort of strange-looking guy um, who's, he's? I don't know, he's very open, and, you know, says, come here, you know, and I'm just making some um, mushrooms on toast. I wasn't sure whether he was doing magic mushrooms or not. <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, so uh, I'm sitting, I have these mushrooms on toast with him, which is very nice, and then we sit down for the afternoon, and he starts playing me all these um, songs on his... Uh, acoustic guitar sitting cross-legged in the room. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this, this guy's not going to work in the band. i he, he doesn't know what he's in for. Uh, but anyway, um, the next day, Simon says, how did you get on with him? I thought, I got on very well with him. But uh, I'm not sure how on earth he's going to you know, sit, sit in with us. But the next day, he brings in Mark, and uh, Chris uh, comes across and hands him this electric guitar that we borrowed from a, a local guy who was in another band called the AJ's. And by then, we got these amazing amplifiers that had been shipped over from America, which were Jordan amplifiers, which were some of the loudest in the world at the time. We had a wall of sound. We could only use about so, half of them in our stage down in our club in Beatherhead, with well, we, the rest we could take onto to bigger stages when we went off to do gigs. So we hand-marked this guitar, and uh, he... Play something on it because he's only he's never played an electric guitar before, but nothing happens. Then Chris comes over and flicks the switch on the guitar and Mark plays a chord, massive sound that he's never heard before. And he drops the guitar and uh, was wondering what the hell's going on. Um, and he looks so shocked. And Chris has to say, no, Mark, this is how we play. So let um, me spend the, you know, the rest of the afternoon trying to get through some songs and he's playing an electric guitar for the first time. And by the end of the afternoon, he's totally animated by the, what he could do with this clown. He's never heard anything like it before. And, uh, you know, rehearsed for a few days there. We're doing a few of his songs. He's doing a, a few of our songs. Um, by the end of the week, before, uh, unfortunately, Jeff is going to come back down on Saturday morning for his rehearsal back with us, um, Mark turns up with these screens which he's bought from his house. And he says, these are my mother's um, vanity screens that she stands behind to uh, get changed in. And I've covered them completely in silver foil. And yeah. they're going to make the most amazing way of making feedback. And we went, oh, all right, okay. So, And he sets them up on the stage. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And then he uh, kneels down in between these things and starts wailing away on his guitar. And whether they, you know, made Joe and Eddie. Even, I don't know, the feedback even more. I'm not sure. Even, anyway, we let him get away with that one. Uh, And then, unfortunately, poor old Jeff, when he comes down to, uh, you know, ready for his rehearsal with us on a Saturday morning and we have to tell him that he's no longer in the band because by now there's been a decision made that Mark's going to be our guitarist.
0: Right. So how did uh, Jeff take the news?
2: Ah, well, you know, I mean, obviously... Mark's not there that morning. On the Saturday morning, we're there, and then we've got the stage set up. And uh, Jeff comes in with a guitar over his uh, shoulder and uh, looks across at the stage and sees these strange screens with um, silver foil all over them. Oh, yeah, oh my God, what's that, guys? And everybody's trying to think who's going to say something, you know. And I can see that Chris was uh, really embarrassed and fiddling away with his drums and banging away. And in the end, it took John to say, you know, with a tear in his eye, look, Jeff, you're not going to be in the band anymore. We've we've got another... And there was a long silence. And then Jeff, he, Jeff had a tear in his eye and he just came forward and took everybody's guitarist. Now. And he said, uh, oh. oh, well, good luck, guys. And they just walked out of the club. Yeah. yeah. And he's gone. Yeah. I spoke to him recently and he said that was the worst day he ever had. That's bands for you.
0: Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So now you've got Mark, and you're signed to Track Records, yeah. which is run by Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp, who were also managing the yeah. Who. And uh, this is when you sort of had some of the great John's Children singles. I mean, obviously, uh, Desdemona. Yeah.
2: Um, well, I can't really remember the whole thing, but I, uh, I think we were in Spot Records, um, which was where The Cream were recording... And uh, he'd come up with this song, which um, I remember him saying, "It's my sort of Elvis Presley version of Jailhouse Rock, sort of." Uh, <laughs> yeah, he loved he loved Elvis Presley and loved Bob Dylan, and so i um, somewhere in between. It, that beginning of Desdemona does sound like the beginning of Jailhouse Rock slightly. Yeah. Um, and uh, off we went, you know, with that one, which is you know, yeah, I mean, amazing it, sound in the middle of it where when. Through these Jordan amplifiers, when he you know smashes his guitar with such a chord that it really sounds evil and amazing at the same time halfway through
0: Yeah, he really took to that electric guitar, right. He- Made
2: it its own. Oh, yeah, I mean, he couldn't tune the guitar. Uh, Chris had to tune it every time for him. <laughs> but other than that, he was uh, he was uh, he was off and running. <laughs> he was both timid such an amazing meet right at the beginning, and he had no idea what he was getting into when he found us lot. But you know, it wasn't long before you know he he was a wild child as well. <laughs>
0: Yeah, he got caught up in it pretty quickly. Um, yeah. So let's talk about that tour of Germany. Cause this is really sort of, I mean, you tell it so well in the book, but uh, for people who haven't read the book, you know, maybe you can sort of do a capsule version of what happened when John's children went on tour in Germany with the Who.
2: Right. Well, so the first night, I think it was in Nuremberg, and um, we thought, well, what are we going to do? Because this is, I mean, we. This was our favourite band. The Who's, how we were going to um, play on the same night with them was was quite amazing. I mean, uh, but the thing was, once we were there, we were doing our sound check, and our guys came out, and we had some rehearsals. They put up all out this wall of sound in front of the Who's, and uh, Chris, by now, had got this double Slingerland drum kit with two bass drums, with amazing kit, much bigger than Keith Moon. <laughs> and the, the next minute we Start doing our sound check, and then both Pete Townsend and Keith Moon rush out onto the stage wondering what the hell. Uh, I think they thought we were using their equipment because it was so loud because we were <laughs> even louder than the hoop. <laughs> so Chris is sitting behind his double and kit, and Keith Moon comes over with a beer in his hand and says, You know, like, what the fuck is this? And uh, Chris puts out that, you know, like, oh, because Chris has, you know, idolized Keith Moon, put his heart, heart out to shake his hand, and the next minute, uh, Keith Moon smashes his beer over the top of the drums and starts kicking them. And Pete Townsend starts walking over and saying, what, what the hell is all out? You know, and I said, give me a guitar. And he starts plugging in. So said, where can I plug it And We plug it in. He starts pushing all the, these Jordan amplifiers over. So things aren't starting too well. <laughs> but, yeah. So uh, that gave us a reason to think, hang on a minute, we want to take these guys on. And that night, I mean, halfway through our performance, I jumped off the stage and picked up a, you know, there's was, was a massive hall, you know, thousands of people. And I just picked up one of the chairs and started smashing it on the ground. The next minute, the whole audience started doing it. <laughs> and uh, so the tour wasn't getting off to a really good start. Was, you know, yeah, by, oh my God. Well, as the days went on, every night we were upping the game. Uh, and towards the end, I mean, Simon had said, you know, you cannot do this every night, what you're doing, because uh, you're going to uh, be thrown off the tour. But on the, just a few days before we come to the end, I remember walking around, I can't remember whether it was um, one of the towns in Germany, and Simon spotted some chains in a window and, and then some, uh, oh, he saw that it said sold feathers by the kilo. So he said, look, oh, I've got a really great idea. Andy, what you do is just pillow pillowcases with all these um, feathers, and so I'll know where you're going to... When you run out into the audience, what you're doing every night, which is nearly getting you killed, if you just throw feathers in the air, we'll know where you're going. Um, well, I thought, this is, well, that's a good idea. You, know, you And also, we bought some blood capsules, because every night, John and I, at some stage, would have a fight on stage uh, <laughs> with a, a, you know, the crisp... Uh, Making the most amazing noise on his drums, and Mark doing all this feedback, and um, and then <laughs> and Simon had given these chains, which he then started smashing the side because oh with these chains, and while my, me and John are on the ground rolling in at a fight, he's slashing us with with the chains over the top. Of it. I mean, so it, <laughs> it just be, it just riots just began, and uh, oh, by the last night the riots were so out of control. I mean, it was just um, once I dived into the audience and put feathers, and they were just going all over the stadium, and uh, this just turned into a complete riot. <laughs> By the time I got back on stage, I was, you know, covered in sort of bloody, getting bruised and everything, and Simon said, look, uh, rushed onto the stage, he said, you've got to get out of here now, this is, you know, it's gone too far. Apparently the riot police had been called, <laughs> and uh, all I remember is um, he dragging us both out, bagging uh, the band out to the bank, and we rushed out through the back door and, and out into the car park, and he said, quick, look, get in. In the Bentley now, we've got to go, we've got to go and the place had turned into a complete right, and as we were, as I was driving out, as we were driving, spinning around and driving out of the stadium, I can see all the windows above us, you know, the windows were all smashed and chairs were coming out <laughs> and, and as we were coming towards the end of the car park uh, police sirens and these um, guys with water cannons were coming in and started firing these water cannons up into the, oh my God, it was like, a, I mean, I've got it latched into my memory is like the most amazing movie Uh, and it's like oh my god quickly we drove off out of there and off down the the autobahn you know at 100 miles an hour and uh, and then it just suddenly went really quiet and it was just absolute silence in the car and we're all you know I've got all my clothes are ripped and there's blood all over us and we're eventually we get back to the hotel and We'd only been there for about an hour or so, and we'd gone to our rooms, you know, trying to calm down. Then the next thing Simon says, we've got to get out of here now. Uh, the police, uh, we're going to be deported, unless we, you know, we've got to get out of the country now. They've confiscated all our equipment, so we just got into his car and, and drove off out of the country.
0: And you made it back to England, but after that, the ban didn't last too long, right?
2: No, uh... We did stop off in Luxembourg for one night on the journey back. we were already out of Germany then, so it wasn't too bad. And uh, that was before we we hadn't had any sleep, so we stopped off there. And uh, Simon said, "I've just seen that Ravi Shankar is on at the the theatre in the town, and he put tickets." So we went and see that that night. Blood. I just remember that we were sitting in the front row of the circle, and when Ravi Shankar came on, with, you know, with a couple of uh, bongo players and just a sitar. Mark was you know, enthralled by the whole thing. You remember there, leaning, watching. So by the time he got back to England, we would you know, getting ready for some next gigs, but Simon said, Mark's, Mark's left the band now. He's decided it's all too dangerous. And uh, you won't believe it, he started uh, his own little folk thing with a bongo player. Hell yeah. And, doing his, and uh, about a week or so later, Simon drags me off to a, some club somewhere to see, Mark and there he is sitting on a carpet across just sat there, playing an acoustic guitar with a bongo player which is pretty much what I'd seen in, in Luxembourg that was it so he's got gone although we did do one gig at the 14 hour Technicolor Dream concert at Alexandra Palace
0: oh right okay yeah of I course
2: that, that, yeah so anyway just,
0: that was the last show with Mark was the, the 14 hour Technicolor Dream that was it yeah. what a way to go out yeah yeah <laughs> So, yeah, and, and as you explain in the book, there was sort of a, like a final last gasp of John's children with now Chris playing guitar and uh, your roadie well, switching to drums, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, well, uh, so when now we go back down to our club one day wondering what the hell we're going to do because Mark's no longer in the band, and um, uh, Chris said, uh, you know, uh, uh, Simon's uh, coming down to, to see us and talk us through something, so we go, oh, well, okay, and he, Simon turns up, and we're sitting there. He says, look, come on, guys, we'll go down to the, the bridge pub down at the end of the road. I want to speak to you about something. And he said, um, I've got this idea for you. Um, tomorrow night, I want you to um, take over from the Bee Gees in Hamburg <laughs> because they pulled out of the concert. And uh, there was a long silence because how on earth, I, you know, everybody was saying, well, we haven't got a guitarist. How are we going to do this and and take over from the Bee Gees? (laughs) Anyway, so we're sitting there and Simon says, look, Chris, who's Chris Coville? this is our manager, he said, you're always sort of playing drums. You know, you've been watching how Chris plays the drums. You know, you can do it. And Chris playing, you know, you always played a lot of the chords for these guitar things. Let's go and do it that way. So we went, oh, all right. How are we going to, you know, you, you know, your idea. I mean, for us. He's never played drums before. Chris has never played guitar before. <laughs> and we're taking over from the Bee Gees at a star club in Hamburg. Anyway, we go and do it. Can you believe it? I mean, uh, and we got away with it. It was a bit strange. Yeah. I mean, Chris Coble was I'm uh, not the best drummer, but he incredible at throwing his drumsticks up in the air and catching them in, in a regular uh, an acrobatic sort of way. So, yeah.
0: And you just played a regular set of sort of regular John's children material
2: yeah well the sort of like about five or six songs so we had to um, by the time we got to a certain stage we thought it was time to release Chris only knew a bit we yeah. so I jumped into the crowd and started running around Uh, but this time it wasn't the same I think they'd heard what we got up to because the audience started just ripping all my clothes off (laughs) Uh, to to the point that I actually hadn't got for some reason, I hadn't worn any underpants that night. So when I jumped off the stage, I was topless and my trousers were ripped off. So there was just me running <laughs> around naked. Uh, and then the crowd went on stage, and uh, Chris Cable pushed his drums over in the similar way that Chris would have done. And we just ran off. Well, it went down quite well, actually. <laughs> we just got banned. And even, even Simon said afterwards, oh, it's coming along quite well, this. <laughs>
0: But that was, that was really the end of John's Children at that point. It sort of fell apart, right?
2: Yeah, that was it. We'd got a few gigs left in England, uh, but one of the gigs... And even John and Chris had a big fight on stage, that's all in the book, it's quite funny, that story. But anyway, yeah. that's, that was the end of John's Children. He just sort of petered out. Instead of going out with a bang, he just went out with a whimper.
0: So the next thing is you, you, you do a few solo things. Um, Cornflake Zoo. Yeah, being one a great great record that one maybe tell us a little bit about how Cornflake 2
2: came about uh, well, one day I was actually went over to EMI and Mark was um, recording some stuff with Simon and uh, I'd only gone over there too so we went Simon and you know, Mark wanted to go to the speakeasy later that night because that's what I wanted to do when I got there, Mark was recording a few tunes. And um, one of them was Cornflake Zoo. was just the backing track. And he said at one point, I don't know what to do with this, Andy. Do, do you want to have it? And Simon said, oh, well, actually, we do need a B-side for a certain single. Uh, so it, can you work out some words for this? He just, and he sent me off to the room, another room. And I spent about you know 10 minutes writing down a load of rubbish, which I thought you know was to see if that was it. I thought the title Cornflake Zoo sounded quite good because, I mean, you take the clap down, they're completely opposite. Um, that, that's a great title Cornflake Zoo. Bang. <laughs> Those are silly uh, verses over the top, and that was it.
0: Right. And, and then I guess another one of your solo things during this period is uh, It's Been a Long Time, which ended up in the movie Here We Go Around the Mulberry Bush.
2: Yeah. So Simon was working as a. He'd gone back to film editing by then. I wish I was helped two things at a, a place in um, Old Compton Street. Actually, it was opposite the Two Eyes Coffee Bar, and upstairs, where there was these rooms for, you know, cutting records, uh, cutting oh. the music to records, with movie owners. In, in one of the other rooms were the Beatles, doing magical mystery tour. But I didn't find out that until later. Wow. So I'm I putting all this music to uh, Here We Go Around the Mulberry Bridge, which is mainly done by Spencer Davis and Traffic, Um. Clive Donner, who is the director of the film and uh, probably the writer as well, I'm not quite sure about that, um, came in and said, uh, Simon, um, we haven't really got a, a music of the love theme that could go over. You know, we want something a bit slower and something more dramatic to go over the love scenes in the film. And then Simon just uh, uh, said, well, oh, I'll, 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 don't worry. I'll just think of something. And that, later on he said, you remember that song that you and Chris used to do down at the club? I don't know what you were doing, but you used to play this thing, this slow thing. Um, what was it called? And I said, oh, oh, yeah, that was cool. It's been a long time. We hadn't really sort of worked on it properly. But anyway, I went back that night with Simon and told him how it went, you know, played it on an acoustic guitar as near as I could and put the words down. And the next day he went off uh, and I'm not sure whether he, who he got to do all the arrangements for the violins, etc. But anyway... <laughs> In the end, it was done with a quite a big orchestra. The great thing about it was he put some seagulls at the beginning. Somehow it really worked. Yeah.
1: Pretty pappas in the
0: air They make me laugh What do I care? The cheeky ones sing. After that, you're sort of out of the music scene for a few years, um, and you spend some time in France. Yeah. I mean, you go through that in the book, um, so
2: it, it, yeah, you know, loads of adventures there.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and we'll let people read that in the book, or, or, or we're going to end up with like a four-hour episode of this uh, podcast. But um, that was part of your life I'd never known about, so that was that was really interesting, um, and, and also some real tragedy there because your brother Nicky died during that period, which must have been. Devastating. Yeah. Know. So, yeah, that, that's something about the book that I really loved was, I mean, there's a lot of really funny and crazy rock and roll stories, but you really open up about some of the, you know, tragedy in your life with your brother and your mother and everything. And, and, uh, and, and so there's some really poignant yeah. things too, which must have been difficult well, for you to, to open up about, I
2: imagine. Well, once you start writing that sort of thing, you, you have to let it out. So there it came. Oh. You know, to losing my brother was you know a major thing. But I had to be really strong at the time with, uh, for my mum and deliver. obviously they. My mum was you know taking it so badly, so I had to sort of wrap it all up inside myself for years. Um, so I never really uh, you know let it all out. But um, so in the book, yeah, I probably let it more out. And you know, and eventually my mother couldn't take it anymore. She, uh, I don't know, just really taken her downhill and eventually uh, she committed suicide. So there again, you know, it's, um, God, there's a lot of things that, you know, go on in the book that because it's yeah. been completely crazy. But, you know, there we go. This is life. This is what happens to people.
0: Right, right. And, th- and this is part of what makes the book so good is because it has all those facets of life, you know, the fun, and then the- also you have to go through the loss.
2: Yeah, the tragedy as well, yeah. Yeah. and. There again, I have to be really strong. I have to keep going and go on and continue being a bit of a maniac. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> and, and that next manifests itself, I suppose, with musically, with Jet, which is your next, you know, you, you, you've been in three great bands over the years, which is, you know, unusual. Most people can't even yeah. claim to have been in one, but you were in three, in three different eras. So the, the second one was Jet.
2: So we've gone from now, from the mod craziness of John's children into uh, glam rock, almost. Right. And uh, this is a whole new craziness and just musical sound. Totally bizarre. I mean, the whole Jet album, I think, is quite amazing, really, isn't
0: it? It is, yeah. I mean, M- Martin Gordon is such a amazing songwriter. He's so clever, you know, and so funny, yeah. you know. And, and Yeah. His songs are... Uh, got all these amazing little details
2: in them you know first of all Chris and I weren't really sure about the whole thing because we're coming from a totally different angle whereas he's coming from a sparksy sort of angle with all this very sort of chafed and um, clever lyrics and it it works it's an amazing album
0: yeah it is I mean and you're but, the perfect singer you know, for those kind of lyrics too I think you know you you just have the you know i Way of delivering them, you know, your sense of time or I, whatever.
2: Yeah, I left it so it's really very English sounding. Yes. Uh, especially, for, you know, the vocals to give it that very English personality. You know, that was Jet, and then <laughs> that all falls apart eventually.
0: Before we leave Jet behind, the, the story in the, another story in the book that really, really made me laugh, and maybe you could tell it here um, about the show at the Apollo Glasgow. Can you can you can you recount that episode oh, for us?
2: Uh, so yeah, we're on tour with we've been given a tour about the country with Mott the uh, well not Mot the Hoop, but it's um, sorry, the Hunter and Ronson tour.
0: Ian Hunter and McRonson, uh,
2: right? Yeah, which is an orange as well. I think that's about third or fourth gig. We're playing at the Apollo in Glasgow. We're obviously the support band. Um well, I come on and do a sound check there and it, the Apollo in Glasgow has the most amazing high stage. It seems to be the highest one in the country, which people will probably remember. Um, and the only way you could get your gear in at the beginning of the set was to bring it down through the main hall at the front, down through the auditorium. And then there was a mini stage that was on hydraulics that came up uh, and take it to the top of the stage and deliver all your equipment. And then this little stage would then drop down. So I... Well, during the sound check, I'd noticed that the little stage was just down about, you know, five, three or four foot below. Very straight. By the time I came on stage and started playing, I thought this was going to be a great, time. I came on to jump down onto pretty much right at the beginning of the act. I uh, didn't realize that they dropped the whole thing right the way down, way down into the orchestra pit. <laughs> so I leapt off stage-faced in the middle of the first number. I'd already taken my top off because I was like, you know, that's what I used to do and leapt out into the middle of nowhere and just disappeared down and down and down. Bang, crashing into the ground. I went, oh, no. I was still hanging on to a broken mic lead with a microphone in my hand. (laughs) So uh, I then thought, oh, my God. And I could only see that I'm now in a pit. So I went off to the left and found a door, went through into that, and I thought, I've got to find my way back up to the stage somehow they're way above me, they're playing away and so I go into this corridor and eventually I'm in sort of a labyrinth of corridors turning left, right, and I just can't find my way back, I'm thinking, I can, the sound of the band is getting quieter and then they're getting louder again, the middle quieter and I thought, alright, oh, suddenly came across these doors and then they bang, smashed into them, went out and I'm outside in, in the road uh, and then the door slams behind me and I was stuck here holding this half lead, uh, thinking, oh, my God, what am I doing now? And because it was dark, you know, by then. And um, I thought, I've got to run round to the front of the thing. And there were still a few punters that were going in, up the steps and into the place. And I'm, I'm looking like some kind of maniac, uh, holding a microphone with a broken lead <laughs> and a topless. Um, I've got to go, try and get back into this place. So... I ran up the steps and tried to get past the bouncers, and they sort of think, "Oh my God, who is this maniac?" And they pick me up and throw me back out onto the street. And I think, "Oh, I've still got it." And I can hear the band still going through the, the beginning of this number. How long are they going to go on? <laughs> Obviously, waiting for me to come back from somewhere. Anyway, eventually, uh, I run up again, and this time I just pass the bouncers and jump over the, the thing at the beginning, the, trying to get into the hall. Uh, run down, uh, bouncers chasing me right down through the audience uh, to the left of the stage and climb up these lighting rigs on, back onto the stage, grab uh, the microphone that Martin was uh, meant to be singing in, and um, we just carried on. <laughs> uh, I think the audience quite liked that, actually. <laughs> I
0: imagine the looks that the band members are giving you when you come back, like, where the fuck oh, have you been?
2: Oh. <laughs> well... It, exactly yes yeah. Yeah, that, yeah
0: that was the sort of look i was getting anyway <laughs> so after jet jet eventually sort of fizzles out while you're making the second album which doesn't end up coming out at the time and uh the next thing but pretty soon afterwards really you formed a new band with martin and chris and that's radio stars so now it's 1977 the punk rock era And it seems like suddenly the UK's caught up with what you were doing, you know, 10 years earlier with John's Children, right?
2: Yeah, suddenly um, everybody thought we were sort of jumping on the the punk thing by because, I mean, the stage act that I've been doing in John's Children has never changed, really. It was just um, back to running around, leaping off stage, going mad, climbing lighting rigs. And uh, so somehow we're now, oh, look, they're they're getting on the punk bandwagon. But... uh, Basically, I'd been doing that, you know, 10 years beforehand. (laughs) Yeah, you were just Uh, doing what you'd always been doing. But we're now, I suppose we're labelled as punks. Or I don't don't think we really were. We were just having a laugh, really. We just, uh, our music was fun. Every night, I'd just uh, try and go as mad as possible. But somehow, keep the whole thing as tight as possible. I'd get away with, you know, singing from crazy heights and... And I I always had really long mic leads.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is really where we come into, you know, the title of the book, you know, Stunt Rocker, because you sort of took it up to a new level with with, uh, radio stars, didn't you? As far as, you know, you were doing like (laughs) backflips on stage and and climbing great heights and things like that. Um,
2: Yeah. I had a trampoline, a mini trampoline that was set up behind the drums. And so at the beginning of the act, um, I'd, Run up and leap onto this uh, trumpet and do a somersault right over the top of the drum kit onto the stage as the flares went off all across the front. So that was the beginning, you know. And uh, I mean, uh, it went wrong a couple of times because at uh, one time I went, uh, flew so far I fell straight into the audience and put uh, one of the enemy's photographers in the hospital. So, <laughs>
0: You sustained a few injuries over the years you sort of went into that a little bit in the book you know with all the stunts that
2: you were yeah. doing I mean to tell you the truth I don't know how I'm still standing I have absolutely no idea how I've got away with it because they um they really were some of the most dangerous things you know how I've still got how I've got any kneecaps left or any sort of bones around my coccyx and things I don't know just I'm still somehow I'm still standing and uh so far no arthritic problems anyway
0: amazing yeah yeah and, and and as you were saying even though you were sort of lumped in with the whole new wave of punk you know you weren't you wasn't really a punk band radio stars i mean there was it was a high energy but there was also a lot of a lot of humor and, and uh a lot of clever humor you know with songs like dirty pictures and you know no russians in russia yes yeah. the barnsley and all, all that you know
2: Exactly, I think that we were just really, I mean, the whole thing was meant to be, a, a, give the audience as much fun as possible and also make it as dangerous as possible so they get a bit worried was family. And I think we were frowned upon by a lot of the other punk groups at the time because we weren't taking it seriously. It, and there was that time when I think they were all very sort of politically minded and uh, we were just out there just having fun. So, I don't know, but nowadays I think people are looking back at that and saying, actually, yeah, Radio Stars really were in such a fun band.
0: Yeah, and I think there was a lot of humour in, in punk, even though uh, people were taking it seriously. Especially now when you look back on it, it, it seems maybe a little, uh, the humour was, uh, you know, buried at the time. You know, there's a lot of humour in those Sex Pistols songs, really.
2: Oh, yeah, you're right. Um, and also The Damned as well.
0: Oh, The He's, Damned, uh, certainly, yeah. Let's talk about, I mean, with Radio Stars, um, you were reunited with Mark because you went on his TV show.
2: Well, it, I mean, I, I hadn't seen Mark for obviously the 10 years. I'd, um, I was rehearsing one day down the King's Road, ready for some gigs with Radio Stars, down at the Furniture Cave, and uh, I was late for rehearsal. And I'm running down the road, high speed, you know, from the station, and suddenly swerves around in the road. Pulls up next to me with sort of blackened out windows and it winds down and it uh, says, "Hi, Andy, what are you doing?" And it, I'm like, oh, my God, it's Mark. So Mark, Mark was there. Uh, he's been driven by this girl and um, he said, what, are you, "What on earth are you doing running like?" That? I said, "Well, I'm just on my way to rehearse with um, my band." He said, oh, "Yeah, I've heard about your band, Radio Stars." He said, "Hey, I've got a program coming up later in the year. You don't want to come and play on it, do you?" I went, "Wow, well, yeah, of course I'd love to." He said, oh, great, okay, and he wound the window down and went, went off. So I thought, oh, that was weird. So I went off down, carried on running down the road, got into the rehearsal room and told the other guys, I've just seen Mark, I can't believe it. Because I heard that he you know, was living in uh, Monaco and uh, was bloated out, maybe not keeping fit anymore, uh, taking a lot of um, cocaine and brandy, and had uh, lost the plot, apparently. But when I saw Mark in this car, he looked exactly the same as when he was in John's Children. I thought, wow, he looks really fit. Uh, Anyway, I told the other guys when I got to the rehearsal, and they all went, oh, yeah, a like story. And then we just carried on rehearsing. But anyway, about a few months later, I got a call uh, from our management company to say that Mark really wants you to come on his program, on the Mark Show. So, the chance to leave, you know, and record a couple of songs there on his show and it was absolutely fantastic to meet up with him again. You know, um, we had a really uh, bit of a laugh backstage uh, talking about all the craziness that was in John's children. And we were, you know, going to meet up a bit later, you know, a few weeks time in London and go out for a meal together. But that never came about oh, because, right. you know, I can't believe it. There was a, you know, a week after we'd done that show, maybe two weeks, I can't remember, uh, he was in this car crash and died. I mean, it's just unbelievable.
0: Yeah, what a tragedy. He was, it was like he was coming back at that point. I, he'd been off the charts for a while and then he was back on TV. I remember it, you know, and it was kind of like, yeah, Boland's yeah. back, you know, and he looks great, sounds great. And he'd sort of aligned himself with all the new bands, um, you know, all like the radio
2: punk stuff. bands. He'd, yeah, he'd started aligning himself with the punk era, you know, and sort of you know, inviting record to support him on his tour yeah you know, with the you know captain sensible and the damned
0: and right and generation X and all those people, yeah they were because they were all inspired yeah. by t rex and everything, so yeah, and then uh yeah that Absolutely, was
2: yeah.
0: yeah, that was very very yeah. tragic, so radio stars yeah. you know that went on for a few years, but in in various incarnations and before it finally sort of folded in the eight in the early eighties
2: right, yeah um we did really well. We were port uh, him on his head in the Hot Rods, massive tour with Squeeze on the same bill. That was a fantastic tour. Then we started Eddie in the tour with gigs in our own right. And then uh, for some reason or other, Martin got really fed up with the fact that our album, the holiday album, our second album, gigs in right, we got into the shops. And so we were out on tour trying to promote it. And, it, you know, it was just, we couldn't find out what it was. I realised that We'd been offered the chance to go to Chrysalis Records, uh, but we turned that down because apparently Tizzic Records had matched the offer. And when they do that, you're obliged to stay with the company. We didn't know that they hadn't got any money. So we were out on a limb that uh, we, we hadn't got any money, the things were poised. but he was uh, getting the records into the shops when we were on tour. Martin just got fed up with the whole thing and just decided to leave and form his own band, which was I think it was going to be the Blue Meanies. And so I was left with thinking, got to, uh, I can drag this band back in to make it just you know, really good. So I got in another guy called Trevor White, who um, was the original guy that gave the guitar to Mark way back earlier on. So he'd never played bass before and put him into the band. And I was back with um, the three of us, which was Ian McLeod, Steve Parry on drums, and Trevor White on bass. And it was a fantastic band. But continued to do all these gigs that had got, been left over around the country. But then it, eventually, because we no longer had Martin, I think the record company, Chiswick Records, gave up on us. The agency gave up on I was actually beginning to organise all the gigs. Right. And it was just taking the toll on me because I was g- going mad every night, com- you know, coming back to the dressing room, completely covered in sweat. And then... N- Getting back and org- uh, trying to write new songs for the band and organising the next gigs, and oh, it just in the end it just took too much it out of me. And by that time, uh, my first daughter was about to be born, so I just stopped the whole thing.
0: Right. You kind of uh, sat it out for a while after that, but then you're now you're musically active again, and you have been for like 20 years or so. Um, you have a new version of John's Children, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, the, when I was in um, back in my home with my two new children, um, I, one day I met up with a guy called Boz Boer, who apparently, um, I didn't realise, lived a couple of streets away from me. And he was in the Polecats, and he said he really wanted to uh, reform John's children. And I had all stuff. So I you know, phoned up Chris and said, come on, you've got to come and do this. And we were back on the road again. Yeah. And we couldn't play. Uh, that was some fantastic gigs with Boz. Uh, eventually, uh, over the years, that's gradually petered out. And then I, one day, I got um, a guy in Finland who was our webmaster, and I had no idea that he was actually a guitarist as well. Uh, he did the same thing and said, look, come on, I'm with these other two guys. We can play all the John's Children stuff, and uh, we just love John's Children. So I, I went, he said, uh, why don't you come over to Helsinki and give it a go? So I thought, oh, well, I'll try that then. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. When the first rehearsal I did with them, it it was incredible. It was just like the, the original John's Children, absolutely note for note. <laughs>
0: they had it all down,
2: yeah. They had it all down. I just couldn't believe it. Every single drum stroke of Chris was done by Vile, the drummer, and then Kasu on bass guitar, and then Miko. Just doing the in Thin Mark thing was just uh, it was amazing. Then I started doing gigs with them, right?
0: But yeah, you've got a new album, Cluster uh, Bombs, right?
2: Yeah, uh, it's a great album. Well, hopefully, it is. Anyway, and then I've got another forty track double CD out. You can buy that at the same time as the book, right? And that's called Wall to Wall Jive, which has something losing some tracks on it. Starting right from the silence upwards, and then loads of in between bits where I recorded solo stuff and demos at home. Yeah, 40 tracks on that. So I've got that, and then also an unreleased Radio Stars album that never came out, which was done 40 years ago, um, Broadcasting to the Nation, it's called. That would have been the third Radio Stars wow.
0: album. Wow. So, yeah, this year you'd have in a banner a year, I guess.
2: Yeah, everything. is totally me this year.
0: <laughs> so you're hoping to do some live shows, I would imagine, as well.
2: Well, I do hope so.
0: Well, Andy, it's been great talking to you again. Uh, I really love the book. I'm going to be reviewing it for the new issue of Ugly Things. That's why I wanted to have you on, so we could, uh, you know, share some yeah. of the stories that are in it. And, uh, and people should go out and find the book. It's uh, easily available everywhere you buy your books.
2: Oh, thank you so much. Well, yes, please go out and buy it. It's uh, an amazing... Rock and roller coaster ride.
0: It is, absolutely, yeah. Over the years. A thrill ride through the decades with Andy Ellison.
1: The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Stacks. That's me. You can order the latest issue of Ugly Things Magazine at UglyThings.com, that's Ugly-Things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Issue number 61 will be coming out momentarily. As I said at the top of this episode... Please support us on Patreon, where all contributions are deeply appreciated. Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Please consider joining and help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, psychedelic music, and more. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters, Ray Brandis, Rob Branigan, and Chip Lyon. Thank you, all of you, for your support, and thank you for listening.
2: Shapes that tell me like I conceive an untrawed track I've come too far again